Welcome back to another impactful night of the Impact HK Leadership. This is episode 132. I'm your host, Daddy Three Flies. The drone Thursday plus are Charles B.C. Caldwell and Larry Davis. Charles B.C. Caldwell, please say hello again, sir, to the people. Hello to the people, Charles B.C. Caldwell out of Mansfield, Texas. Awesomeness. And Larry Davis, please say hello to the people. Hey, hello, people. Happy to be here with you. Looking forward to a great evening with these two gentlemen. So let's get it going. Well, tonight's going to be a night of rebranding. What I mean by that? Well, tonight's topic is fighting for civil rights from a social economics perspective. Education, occupation, and income are considered the leading indicators of a successful life in our society. Vygotsky's social cultural theory views human development as a socially mediated process in which children acquire their cultural values, beliefs, and problem-solving strategies through collaborative dialogues with more knowledgeable members of society. In modern societies, social mobility is typically measured by career and generational changes in the social economic levels of people's occupations and their job status. Basically, it's the status quo. Eric Erickson, another theorist, who focused on how children socialize and how this affects their sense of self, their self-esteem. His theory of psychosocial development includes eight stages from infancy all the way to old age. So, what is healthy relationships? What is a healthy self-image? What is a healthy personality? Well, it's the result of completing each stage of development. First, I want to bring Charles B.C. Caldwell. Uh, man, this guy is a mentor to me. Uh, he knows some of everybody. B.C., what you got going on currently, sir? Uh, currently, I, I have basically been doing my Tuesday night talk. Uh, what happened when we, you know, COVID-19 basically, you know, made all of us stay inside and we couldn't, you know, be social. We couldn't do community events anymore. Then I went virtual. Actually, I went live on Facebook and I started on my 60th birthday and I called it a TNT, Tuesday night talk. And I have a different topic every Tuesday night and I, I've been doing that since uh, June 16th, uh, 2020. I have a lot of followers, uh, uh, middle-aged, adolescents, middle-aged, uh, elderly brothers and sisters that are following me and uh, listening and commenting and encouraging. And, and it's very inspirational simply because I am learning and earning. So, you know, as you study, the more you study, you know, knowledge is power. So that's what I've mainly been doing. I haven't really been in schools and communities like I want to because of the COVID and, and uh, all the viruses that are floating. But I'm still reaching out, uh, trying to help make this world a better place. And that's my motive and that's my purpose as long as I'm on this earth. You know, Big C, when I talk to you a lot of times, I, I hear the word Eminem. And what I mean by Eminem, that's movement and moments. Movement and moments. And so, movements and moments, okay? Moments are important. 
And with that being said, let me ask you a question. When I, I gave you this topic for tonight, fighting for civil rights from a social economic perspective or a social economic lens, what was the first thing that came to your mind when you got that topic? When you when you first, you know, gave me this opportunity to speak on this tonight and you gave me my questions, the first thing that came to my mind was um with civil rights you know what are civil rights you know and i like to read that right now the definition of civil rights is you know civil rights are an essential component of democracy they guarantee now that's what it says they guarantee of equal social and political opportunities and protection under the law regardless of race religion or other characteristics examples are the right to vote to a fair trial to government services and to a public education now if i'm allowed to continue i'd like to roll on into that is that okay if i roll on into that you know you got this man come on okay okay however comma exclamation disenfranchisement is the restriction of an individual voting rights due to a conviction in a felony. Felonies are offensive that are punishable and incarcerated more than one year and or a fine of over 1,000. Felony disenfranchisement is one of the collateral consequences of a conviction. Disenfranchisement is common for felons across the United States. And since the United States is amongst the most punitive countries in the world, let me say that again. The United States is amongst the most punitive countries in the world when it comes to felonies. Its limitations are more restricted than in many other countries around the world. Now, taking in consideration, the racial disparity is embarrassing to the people of color when it comes to incarceration. Is it justice or is it just us? Let's talk about Juwan Howard, Greg Gard, the head coach of the University of Michigan, head coach of the University of Wisconsin. Juwan Howard has been suspended for the rest of the season, five games. He's been fined $40,000. He could possibly lose his salary for the five games. However, comma, anybody that saw that incident, you know the coach from Wisconsin, Greg Gard, grabs him first. But the way he responded, tells you how America is when it comes to civil rights. We have more freedom now in America than ever, but we're lacking in discipline. What do I mean about that? Jawan Howard, you cannot respond the way you did. You should not. Now, am I saying he was wrong? No, I'm not. He was already upset. We have to know how to control our emotions because we know there are racial disparities. We know there is social injustice. We know civil rights is just something written on paper. And it says it's guaranteed. There's not guaranteed. There are, there, are, there are double standards in America. And just because marijuana is legal don't mean you have to smoke it. Oh, wow. Ooh, somebody dropped the mic. Somebody dropped the mic. Uh, so, yeah, for those who are coming in, we want to welcome you in the spirit of hospitality. When uh, Big C, as you was talking, because you got me, you got me excited like you always do. And, and another word came to my mind. We're going to deal with this a little bit because I know Larry Davis is, is ready to go. Uh, but I want to throw this out, and whoever wants to take it can uh, before I start going into more uh, prompts and questioning. But. As you were talking, I, was, I, I kept hearing the words affirmative action. Affirmative action refers to a set of policies and practices within a government or organization seeking to include particular groups based on their 
race, their gender, their sexuality, their creed, or their nationality in areas in which they are, here it is, underrepresented in. Okay? Mm-hmm. If anybody want to take that, if anybody want to uh, give their thoughts and opinions about affirmative action and how it is uh, being used now, is it is it being used as a crutch? Is it being used effectively? Okay, y'all can show that for a little bit. Let me go to Larry Davis. Let me go to Larry Davis. We'll come back to that. Larry Davis, please, please say hello again to the people and let us know what you're doing currently, sir. Hi, hello, hello, listeners. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a second career educator. Currently, my best job, my favorite job in the world is being a dad So, and a man of God. So, you know, that stands alone. So what I do is education, but that's not who I am. But hey, uh, I want to answer, I want to go back to what you just said and, and what, what Charles said. I want to hit on a couple of things. We talk about affirmative action and we talk about civil rights. But there are two words that we need to we, we, we get confused when it comes to black people. One is compliance and compliant, right? There are rules, there are laws, there are procedures. There's all these things on the books about civil rights and uh, affirmative action. And jobs and organizations, they do them to be in compliance. But it doesn't mean that they're compliant. So that's our part. The next step in this movement is moving from compliance to compliant, making sure they're not just checking the box, but doing the actual deed. So I think that's where we're going when it comes to affirmative action, when it comes to civil rights, when it comes to uh, all these things, right? And here's the thing, and we talked to, uh, uh, Mr. Charles mentioned uh, incarceration. The, the United States said you cannot be punished twice for a crime, right? For one single crime, double jeopardy, you can't do it, crime. you can't be shot yeah. twice for it, right? So mm-hmm. if a man of color goes to prison for robbing a bank, you can't come back and then take away his civil liberties. That's punishing him twice. So I'm going to go ahead and let you answer your question. I just want to chime in on that thought right there. You know, compliance and no, compliance. Yeah. Let me let me let me let me come up with that ID three. Okay, Larry, you are absolutely right. That's what the rules and regulations say. That's what the law says. We got affirmative action. We got civil rights. We got the Constitution. We got all these things that are written on paper. However, when it comes down to it, rules and regulations are enforced the way they want to. People in positions of authority take action on who they want to, and they allow certain people to get away with murder, and they allow some people to get punished for things that they didn't do. Or, for example, we, as African-American people of color, have to realize that if the speed limit is 75, we need to drive 75. If we drive 85, nine times out of 10, we're going to get pulled over because we're already being profiled anyway. During the meanwhile, you'll see William pass you running 85, 90 and not get a ticket. Well, guess what? You can't point your finger at William for speeding because you're breaking the law also. So we have to realize we have to know our position. We have to know our place. I'm not saying live less than the citizen. What I'm saying is when you're seeing double standards, when you're seeing social injustice every day on the news, in your face, in the newspaper, right? in front of you when it happens to you I'm a retired Air Force veteran of 25 years and if I had to write a book right now which I'm in the process of negotiating the name of it is going to be my allies and adversaries were the same people because I had to fight to stay in the Air Force more than I did against the opposition so I'm OIF, OEF, Desert Storm, you name it. I've been to all that. But my greatest fight was fighting to stay in because I was an intelligent big black man 
So we know there's racial disparities in, in America. We know that justice is just us. We know that all these things that are written in black and white are just something on a piece of paper. They enforce them when they want to. They enforce them on who they want to. So we have to know our place. We're free, but we still have to use discipline. We have free will. And you heard me say, just because marijuana is legal, don't mean you have to smoke it. Just because alcohol is legal at 21, don't mean you have to drink. We have to realize as African-Americans, people of color, that we're gonna be the first fire and the last fire, regardless of what any rule and regulation say. Affirmative action, civil rights, you can call, you can go from A to Z. It doesn't matter. That's just the way it is. Let me throw y'all a curveball because, see, this conversation is going to a whole nother layer. Now, what do I mean by that? Because what we're pointing to is the word called privilege, right? We're pointing to this, this special advantage that's only available now to a certain or a particular person or group of people. So I'm going to say privilege is a brand name. How can we as blacks or African Americans, however you want to call it, how can we start to rebrand our image, right? Because when we start rebranding our image, it should affect, well, let me just ask a question, Larry Davis. What effects do you see within education as it relates to diversity and inclusion since COVID-19? Are they getting better? Are they staying the same? Are they getting worse? Give us a GPS. Where are we at right now? It's not getting better. And I will tell you this, COVID-19 didn't, didn't make it worse. COVID-19 exposed what was going on. So we have to, I want to make sure we understand that. The problems that were existing in education were existing prior to COVID-19. COVID-19 just exposed it, brought it to the forefront. That, that achievement gap was there before COVID-19. Uh, the have and have not existed in our school systems before COVID-19. Uh, the, the, the highly punitive actions of children of color and children with disabilities was taking place before COVID-19. And I think I shared with you last week that uh, the number one, when you look at students, the number one student who's being punished is the African-American female. Because teachers say, oh, black females are loud and, and this and that. And then they go to the angry black female, then they go to the angry black man. So when you look at uh, disproportionate di uh, discipline, it's going to be the African-American female in, in our schools, then the African-American male, and then students of disability. And uh, and if I, if I knew we were going to get you, I would have brought some data for you and I would have given to you by state how, how much this disparity is when it comes to that. So COVID-19, we, we have a lot of people, a lot of school districts now have the Officer of Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity, right? But again, it goes back to are you being, are, it, would office be compliant or will they just be compl in compliance? And right now, because those officers are just coming to fruition, they're just going to be in compliance. They're not going to be compliant. They're not going to make a lot of changes because even though a lot of these jobs are being given to people of color, they still answer to a whole different race of people. Your superintendent is probably not going to be African-American. Your board members, is, you know, unless you're in a predominantly African-American city, is not going to be African-American. Uh, so you, your hands are still going to be tied because this new position of diversity, equity, and inclusion, 
we don't know what to do with it just yet. We know why it exists. We know it should exist. Uh, and here's the thing. The things that they're talking about are the things that Charles said earlier. We should have been enforcing that years and years ago. This is not new. So COVID-19, we can blame a lot of things on COVID-19, but the problems in our education system, the equity, the diversity, the inclusion, uh, the lack of the discrimination, the disproportionately disciplining our children of color, that's been going on far too long and COVID had nothing to do with it. I like to answer my uh, first question because Larry, basically everything he said leads right into it. it it's, it's actually perfect. I mean, uh, Larry, I run a nonprofit organization. It's a mentoring program called uh, Adolescent Tudosi in Mansfield. I'm on a diversion, uh, equity, and inclusion committee that they've been hosting all year in the Mansfield Independent School District. And we we were meeting like every week for a while until all of a sudden, you know, the virus got out of hand and we had to start putting things on hold and and. and and delaying them. However, everything that you said is absolutely 100% correct. It's the African-American females, the African-American male, then it's, then it's the, you know, the needy, the, you know, the ones that with disability, then it's also, don't forget that our Hispanics, you know, it's, it's, it's people of color, but you, uh, chronologically, it's the, the, the black girl, the black boy, the Hispanic girl, the Hispanic boy, and then the, the, the disability, the kids that are being deprived. And my question, first question was, what are some of the life choices that parents and educational institutions can work together to bridge the needs of students while safeguarding the educational system during and after this pandemic episode? Some of this information was retrieved from the uh, Brown Center chalkboard by uh, Marty Schwanbach Becker, who's an associate professor of psych, uh, psychology and counseling service at Florida State University. And uh, it reads as such, American students were experiencing widespread mental health distress long before COVID-19 pandemic took hold. Larry alluded to that. A tragic expression of this stress, youth suicide has been on the rise for the past decade and is now the second leading cause of death for ages 15 to 24 year old. Now the pandemic is making matters worse. In a recent survey, over 80% of the college students reported that COVID-19 has impacted their lives through increased isolation, loneliness, stress, and sadness. These connections are entirely unsurprising given what we know about the impact of social isolation on mental and emotional well-being. While stay-at-home orders quarantines and social distancing precautions are essential public health tools for curbing the spread of infectious disease. These measures may well have the opposite effect on the prevalence of psychological anguish and distress. As we continue to weather the impacts of the pandemic and work toward recovery and the eventual full return to the classroom, here are three things educators, school counselors, administrators, and parents can do. One of them, and the most important, I'm just going to stop at one. I'll do the other two later. Know the warning signs of distress in students. Now, you heard me say suicide is up. The second leading cause of death between kids ages 15 and 24. That was unheard of back in the day, 60s, 70s, 80s. Suicide was only from people that were doing on drugs. Now, with all this social media and all this stuff that these kids are exposed to now, we... And when I say we include everybody that's involved with this educational process of mentoring and educating the community, the parents, we have got to look for the signs of distress. When you start seeing a kid acting abnormal, we need to throw up a red flag. We need to be proactive. It's better to overreact than not to react at all. And I think that's what we're failing at. We're not looking at the signs. The parents, 
That's who it starts with. You can't send a kid to school and expect the teacher to raise them. The parents, we got to know our kids. We shouldn't look at our kids. We should observe them. I'm going to stop right there. Oh, that's so good. Oh, that's so good. You know, discrimination and ostracizing <laughs> form stress. And, you know, Big C, you are a veteran like me, so you know about PTSD. You know about PTSD. Got you know it. what PTSD I got it. do. I got you it. See? And see, and you know what what effects happen on the PTSD. It, it's, it's trauma. It's reoccurring trauma, and it, it affects your memory. It affects how you... It just affects you psychologically. And you have to be a strong person. You know, and everybody has been trained to be resilient like you have. You know what I mean? Against their stress. Yes. You know, as it relates to that 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 PTSD, that, that stress, that that ostracizing, that segregation, that discrimination, right? As it relates to our, our schools and our school cultures. Uh, Mr. Larry Davis, as a as an educational consultant, based off of what we're talking about now, could you kind of like go in and describe for us, the listening audience, how black and brown children are affected by different or within different school cultures and school campus visions, and how does that affect their social mobility in their adulthood? Could you, could you, could you share with us? Could you, could you walk with us? We promise we're going to listen. Please, sir. Larry Davis. Uh, well, you know what? So, uh, Mr. Charles said, we, ha we have to raise our children and stop allowing the school to raise our children, right? There is this uh, Latin phrase that's a part of the teacher creed in loco parentis, which means in lieu of the parent, the teacher is the parent. The problem is our teachers don't look like our kids. So how can you parent a child if you have no idea of the background and the, and the history of that child? And so I, I wrote a paper back, uh, it's been about 15 years ago, and at that, that point in time, if you were an African-American child, an African-American male, and the likelihood of you having an African-American male teacher if you didn't play sports was less than 5%, because most at that time, mostly all the African-American males Teachers were coaches. They, you know, they coached that. So if you didn't play sports, you didn't have an interaction with the African American male. The numbers are a little bit better now. Not a lot better, but a little bit better. So when you look at that, until our schools look like our students, until our faculty and staff look like our student bodies, how can a, a child of color come and identify? You know, with the with the person who's teaching them, who's in front of them, the show Cheers. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. People shop where they feel welcome. They shop where they see people who look like them. They eat where they see people who look like them. So until we get our schools to look like our kids and we get the people who are in our schools to actually show that they're there for our children, our children don't feel welcome. And if you don't feel welcome somewhere, why are you going to give it your best? Because we understand this. They're not adults. So they don't know that even though those people don't look like them or these people don't look like us, they can still learn from them. They're not adults. We still have to teach them those things. So the biggest, uh, again, the, the two biggest factors in a child's success is, A, the, is the parent's involvement, but uh, more than that, the mother's involvement, right? 
if a mother has a college degree, the likelihood of an African-American child graduating and getting a degree is higher than any other factor in this country. That now, having two parents involved in that, in that equation is even better. And I shared with you last week that I would have to go as a principal. I would go to football games, sit down next to my parents, my male parents, my fathers, and I would invite them to my office the next week or the next day because I need to get them involved because our young men of color need to see older gentlemen of color taking pride and taking place in their academics, not just their athletics. Amen. Come on, can I say one thing? I, I need three. As Larry is speaking, one word came to mind as we're having this conversation, and we're talking about color. We're talking about the teachers and stuff. And he is right back in the day, the only black coach, the only black teachers you saw were coaches. I think when I graduated, there was one black coach on the whole staff, and he had his master's in business, which you know, which encouraged me to get mine. But there's a word that I've grown to understand as I matured and been involved with these kids regardless of their color or race, and teachers, regardless of what color they are or where they're from, there's one word, they must be nurturing. If they're not nurturing, meaning they don't care about what these kids are dealing with, because some of these kids have horrible home neighborhood, they their mom is sprung out on drugs, or daddy is in prison, especially when it comes to the kids of color. They're getting high with their mom. And when it comes to the girls, the mom and the daughter are on the same school bus. You know what I'm saying? Because they're getting pregnant at 12, 13, 14, and by the time they graduate, their daughter is in, in first grade. So they're on the same bus. Parent, teachers must be nurturing. I don't care. Male, female, black, white, green, or purple. If they're not nurturing, meaning they don't care, they don't use empathy when it comes to these kids, then every kid, regardless of what color they are, are going to become resilient because they feel like nobody cares. Hey, can I add to that, Charles? You, you, you still put a whole Please, different kind of worm. So whenever I interview and hire teachers, here's what I look for first and foremost. Do you have a purpose for why you're doing what you're doing? Two, do you have the ability to build relationships and like children? And three is your pedagogy. I can teach you how to teach. I can give you better instruction for math, science, and English, but I can't teach you to like kids. And I can't give you a purpose. Amen. So if you don't have Amen. a purpose and you don't like building relationships, you're not going to be a successful a successful teacher. I remember my first year as an administrator, they had a, a Caucasian teacher, and she was checking row. And the uh, Hispanic students would say, Miss, Mister. They didn't call you by your whole name, but that's that was being uh, that was being respectful to them. Miss, Mister. She wrote them up saying, I done told them my name is Miss Johnson. And, and instead of the guy, the lady said, but I'm Miss Davis, I'm saying Miss, Miss. And she's getting upset with me said I'm being disrespectful. I had to set the student outside the door and talk to this first year teacher who had no, no concept of culture, right? Because I knew in a couple of days, she was going to be sending an African-American student to the office for saying, I, <laughs> you know, it was just a matter of time. And I said, Miss Johnson. These are teachable moments, not just for for the student, but for you as well. It gives you an opportunity opportunity to grow. You have to understand the culture of the children you're teaching. So now what I do every year when I have new teachers, we do scavenger hunts in the neighborhood because I need the teachers to know where the kids are coming from that's going to be in their classroom before their school year starts. 
And, and you know come something, Larry? Let me come say on. this. Let me say this. I'm, ID3 has seen me before. I'm a former basketball player, and now I look like a football player. I'm about 6'7", 300. Very big guy. I, but all my students, everybody that I mentor, boys and girls, men and women, call me Big C. I don't care if they, I'm not walking around here if they don't call me Mr. Carl will feel like you disrespected me. And that's because I'm secure with myself. There's not a kid I've ever mentored that can tell you one thing, bad thing about me. I've never had an incident. I've never had a kid to try me and people say, because you're so big. No, they don't care no about your size because we got police officers carrying guns and they disrespect them. They know that I care. And just because they call me Big C don't mean they're disrespecting me because I'm secure with myself. If I ask any of those kids to do anything, they jump and do it. So I don't walk around demanding respect. If you call me Mr. Carwell and still disrespect me, what have I accomplished? It's not your size, it's the size of your heart. It's the size of your there heart. There it is, bro. Nurturing. There it is. That's all it is. You, like, the kids don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Listen, I love it, guys. I'm about to throw you another curveball. Cause see, y'all, y'all, y'all just mastered that. I'm y'all hitting uh, three point shots from half court, slam dunking from the free throw line. Let me let me twist it on you, okay? Let me twist it on you. Now we know our, our black and brown students have a high aptitude as it relates to sports, uh, as it relates to physical self esteem, for the most part. How can we start focusing on those that role of the ego, right? That they're so crucial to growth as it relates to um, education and, and that self-awareness and that that identity. Now, what I mean by identity, I'm saying knowing your purpose, knowing your assignment on, on earth. Because I know we got two men of God on the podcast tonight. But how can we get them to start focusing more on, okay, hey, you're not going to maybe go to the NBA. Okay, you, you may not go to the NFL. Okay, you may not, you know, be the next Jay-Z or, or Kanye West. Right? But you could be the next inventor. You could be the next entrepreneur. You could be the next engineer. How can we make, and I don't want to use the word sexy, <laughs> but how can we make the books look attractive or, or make education look attractive as a mentor, as a leader? Who wants to take that? I'd love to take it. I've already typed it down just in case. What I mean about just in case, reach for the stars. It's okay to want to be the next Jay-Z. It's okay to have a dream and want to go to the NFL. Even though the odds are against you, but never cut yourself short. But just in case you don't make it, get your degree. Because look at the numbers. If you want a million dollar contract, and that's probably what you'll get if you make it to the NFL, NBA, whatever you're trying to get, and I'm quite sure that's what's driving them, and you get your college degree and you make $100,000 a year for 10 years, you still made $100, a million dollars. But if you don't ever make it to the NFL and in 10 years you're still trying to get in, you ain't made a dime because you don't have your degree. You're making just enough money to survive or, or to support your habits. So just in case, get your education. That's it. Just in case. So I'm going to add to that. Uh, 
teach them how to how to orchestrate a plan, a business plan, regardless of where they want to go. If they learn how to orchestrate a business plan, if we can teach them how to forecast, how to how to project and, and build a business plan, right, to get to the goal, even if that goal is the NBA, the NFL. And we know that, that we know that what the numbers are like, you know, they being the NBA, the odds are like getting struck by lightning, right? But if we <laughs> teach them how to build a business plan, right, what they'll see is through that business plan, you have to make adjustments. You have to make exceptions. You have to, you have to factor in for what is, like he said, and just in case. You have to make those factors in there. So I want to say this. So in Texas, last year we adopted uh, an African-American curriculum. Every school district in Texas has a habit. But here's the thing, Charles. Here's the thing, Mr. Charles and Isaiah. But they don't have to teach it. They just have to have it on the book. If they can offer as an elective. And if you offer as an elective, that means kids aren't going to take it. So we either have more books that are, I mean, come on, we can have Langston Hughes. We can have... All these, you know, Zora Neale Hurston. We can have these books in our schools teaching our children because if we're teaching them about morality, if we're teaching them about dilemma, if we're teaching them about struggle, who who's better to write? Who's better to teach them those things than the person who actually went through it, who wrote the book? So we can, if we could just get books in our schools written by people who look like our kids, that would be a big step in the, in the right direction. But again. Carter G. Wilson said this, and this is this is so true. It, mm. And I, I, you know, I, I read the miseducation of the American Negro, African American Negro, mm. the, 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 American, uh, the miseducation of the, uh, the Negro years ago. But I, but until like two years ago, when I re-listened to it, I bought the audiobook and re-listened to it. The thing is, this right here: we can sell you on a bill of goods, right? And it doesn't matter if. If you are LeBron James or if you are an entertainer, what happens is if we're not owners of industry, we're the workers during the week and the labor and we're the entertainment on the weekend. We have to teach our kids to be owners of industry. And I remember talking to some uh, professors at a conference and they were telling me that Booker T. Washington and WB DeBose didn't, they had, they didn't get along. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not true. They actually offered their philosophies at two different time periods in life. Booker T. Washington's philosophy was coming right off the, the end of slavery. And he was saying, we have to get into that workforce. And he was correct. W.E.B. DeBose uh, philosophy came a lot later when it was time and, and, and blacks could actually uh, trademark things. Blacks could actually own business. Blacks could actually be self-supportive. And he's already saying it's time to own business. So we need to own the business and own the franchise. But yeah, let's not diminish the dream of a child wanting to play in the WNBA, the NBA, the NFL. But let's teach him how to make a plan. Do you know what Jay-Z said? I'm not a businessman. I'm a business man. That's exactly what you just said in a nutshell, Larry. And we, yeah. we nowadays, we never think ownership. We never think support our own. African-Americans spend over a trillion dollars a year. How many of us support our own people? Buy from our own people. Everywhere you go, you the Asians are in our neighborhood. I'm going to give you one better than that. The money that the African American, the money that blacks spend in America each year is comparable to be the 11th largest spending, the, uh, the spending of the 11th largest nation in the world. The money yep. that we spend in the United States, think about this. We are one third of the income spent in the United States, but yet we're only 13% of the population. 
They gonna always keep us in the fourteen percent. This, this is good. Let me okay. Let me throw y'all another curveball. Okay, I'm gonna see if you gonna hit this one out the park <laughs> on the stadium. Young African American children. Okay, and both of you gentlemen, you know this. You guys are mastery level mentors and school leaders. You, I mean, you know this that most of our young African-American children want, they want to see or they want to experience good leadership. But this is the question. What are some ways that we can teach them how to start looking for those, uh, those, those key things to look for or elements to look for with good leadership? And I'm talking about not in those private schools where they have plenty of it, but I'm saying tonight's topic, we're talking about socially, economically disadvantaged communities. That's what we're talking about tonight. What are some ways we can start recruiting? Oh, we got to. We got, come on. Big C, you know we got to go deep. Who wants to take this? You, you want to go first on that ladder, then I'll follow you? Nah, go right ahead, because you, you keep you giving me ideas. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. I, I need three. Here's how I feel about that. As you were speaking, I went back to what my grandfather taught me. We had a third grade education. Birds of the same feather flock together. And what happens to our adolescents, you know, 13 on up, is that we start running with the wrong crowd. We want to hang out with people who are having fun, good timing. And next thing you know, you're 15, you're 20, you're 25, you're 30, you're 35, you're 40, and you're still having a good time. You haven't done anything with your life. But then you got little Leroy over there that's sticking to himself. You always see him studying. He's always in the library. He's always researching. He's making good grades. But instead, you make fun of him because that's the nerds. He wears the glasses because he's always reading. Then next thing you know, when you're 25, you still at home with mama. Here come Leroy, the one you laughed at when you was 15, now driving a Rolls Royce and got his own business. So what we have to teach our kids is to learn from others and don't make the same mistakes. Your, 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 your cousin, your brother, your uncle, your aunt made. Because everybody wants to tell people how to live their life. But they not living like that. How you gonna tell me how I should be living if you ain't doing it? So success breeds success. Like Larry said, if you go talk to a parent and that mother has a college degree, then that daughter is more likely gonna get theirs. And if the mother and father got a college degree, it's, it's a high percentage chance that that child is gonna graduate. All three of my, I have one child. We all have we all have college degrees, and that's unheard of to African American people. But there, it's getting better. So what we have to do is instill greatness in our kids. You know, you don't you don't settle for less. You don't settle for being second and third. You keep trying until you 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 up front. And I don't care what color person is. If a person burned down your bridge in front of you, then you take the material from that burnt bridge. You build a raft and you still come across. Tenacity is what we need to teach into our kids. That's exactly right. But you know what? Also, we need to go back to understand, let our children know that they are the descendants of kings and queens, not servants and slaves. Yes. Let's, let's be realistic. That tree 
that tree roots were, were born in soil planted as kings and queens, not servants and slaves. And so this whole three-fifths of a person that America still looks at us like we're still that person. You know, we're not. I tell my son and my daughter all the time, I want you to take risk in life, but don't risk your life, right? Because I want them to do and do do things that they didn't see me do. Go out there and do it yourself, you know. My, I, wrote a, I wrote books because on, I was an educator, but I wrote books because I wanted my son and my daughter to say, you know what? If my dad can do this and still write a book, I can do this and do something else. You see, we can't. We have to tell our children, you don't have to be married to one industry, right? Because you can be an ambassador of several industries. You know, and that's where, that's where I see this ownership of our children coming from. And you say, where do they go for leadership? That's a great question. And that's the thing. We like to give our children the answer. And sometimes we need to tell them, what do you think you should go for that answer? And then start building that leadership inside of them, right? They watch us. They emulate us. But guess what? Charles, Isaiah, yourself, and all the callers on here, one thing I can tell you, and, and myself included, we want our children to exceed us, not to be us. Yes. We want them to exceed yes. us. Yes. Right? Yes. And, 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 and until we get there. So that's leadership. So we can teach them leadership, but the leaders we want them to become, we can't even imagine. I'm hoping that my son and my daughter become leaders that I could never fathom, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm challenging them along the way. I'm, uh, I made sure they were avid readers. But more than that, I want to make sure they're problem solvers, right? And I don't, and I, 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 you know, here's that Christian part of me. Here's that godly man of me. God sometimes appoints and then he anoints. So take that position even though you don't think you're ready for it because God ain't going to give it to you if he's not ready for you to have it. Listen, let me let me say something. Let me say something because I'm because we we out we out of time. But let me say this because I, I want to see what we talking about with this. You know, legacy for me, okay, is a seed. So you leave a legacy behind, you leaving the seed that will turn to the tree. And that tree is gonna go off and have more seeds. So if you don't want your legacy to go off and be bigger than you, you shooting yourself in the foot. I mean, who wanna talk about that? Who wants to talk about that? Cause we about, we about to get out of here. We're fighting for civil rights from a socioeconomic perspective. But what are your takeaways for tonight? Who wants to go first? I'll go, go ahead, real Mark. fast. Larry alluded to it, a man of God. I, 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 I try to be a man of God. I consider myself a man of God. And it's basically what God tells us, generational. He, he will bless your generation after generation after generation, or he will curse your generation after generation after generation. My motto to my nonprofit is experience is the only situation where you get the test before the lesson. If we lay, leave a stable foundation, if we earn our living by the sweat of our own eyebrows and we instill it in our children, they don't see us taking shortcuts because you get cut short. They don't see us selling dope. They don't see us out here gang-banging, mobbing, walking around with a pistol with our pants sagging, showing our underwear. They see our education. They see it on the wall. They see us with Air Force careers. They see us mentoring for free. They see us out here setting an example for others. And they see how my father lived. They see how my mother lived. So that generation is going to bring up a, a, a situation where they won't make the same mistakes we made. Then my grandchild won't make the same mistakes that her mother made. Then my great-grandchildren won't make the same mistakes that her mother made. And that's what we have to do is allow God to bless us and we need to realize that he will bless your second third fourth generation he will also curse it 
that generation curse is real. And I will say, I'm going to add on to that. There is no message without a mess. There's no testimony hmm. without a test, right? So let's be realistic. And here's the thing. When you look at, he talked about generational curses. But here's the thing. He's a forgiving God. So a generation curse can always be removed. So don't, and, and that's the thing. We have to teach, we have to teach our children and our peers that we are not our circumstances. That's the big. When people tell you, I've been broke so long, I'm used to it. That's, that's the devil talking. <laughs> you know, we can't say things like that. You know, I'm used to running these streets. This is what my, my, my dad did. This is what his dad did. That don't mean that's what your child has to do. So we need to teach him, okay, yeah, you can be a victim of a generational curse, but you can also break that generational curse because he is a forgiving God. And our goal in life as adults is to help him break that curse. Let me tell you, if my, if, if, if my brother had dropped out of school, I can tell you right now, he wouldn't have let me drop out of school. But he didn't drop out of school. There are so many of us saying, man, I didn't go to school. You don't need to go to school. We need to stop that. We, if you don't want it, you go over there and sit down and be quiet, but don't stop somebody else from getting it. So uh, in closing, that's what I want to say. You know what? That each one teach one. And yes, you are your brother's keeper. And we have to... Um, black lives will matter when we go back to treating our black women like the queens they need. They should be treated as. We have to treat them better than we treat ourselves. Woo! You're preaching now because black, in order for black lives to matter, we got to stop killing each other. Look, we are out of time. Look, this was like, wow. This was epic. Tonight was epic. Listen, this was... You need to hook, need to hook me back up with Larry, ID3. You need to hook me back up with Larry, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get the real deal and uh, pastor on. And what I'll do is I'll try to work their schedule, and then we can maybe possibly build it around that. But we definitely need to do a part two on this one. We're going to do it. Well, look, y'all. Love y'all, and good night.